God, you reign, because he does. Um, and whether you believe that or not, it doesn't really matter, because he reigns. So he's not taking a vote. Uh, not a democracy, a sovereignty. And so thankful that he is sovereign, and he deserves our praise. Uh, well, before we dive in here this morning, um, first, uh, let me, man, the lights are bright today. Whew. Somebody got some sunglasses there I can borrow? Um, uh, I'm kidding you. Thank you. But we do want to welcome you, and uh, uh, my name is Brian McKenzie. I have the privilege of service one of the elders here at the Potter's House and also uh, bring God's Word a couple times a month, and just uh, what, what a great privilege it is for me to be able to do this, and I uh, want to let you know I, I don't take it lightly at all. I mean, this is a, a great privilege, and it's also so important um, that we spend time in God's Word and we listen to Him, um, and many people want to hear God speak, um, and you want to uh, hear, I don't mean this flippantly or any, anything, people want to hear God speak audibly. Well, if you just read God's Word out loud, He's speaking audibly, and that's not funny, it's true. It's true. This is his word, and he's speaking to us when we read his word, when we listen to his word, when we talk about his word. He's speaking to us. Um, If some people would quit trying to listen for God's audible voice and get into all the words he's already given us, we'd be a lot better, wouldn't we? He's given us enough. There's enough in here right now that'll last us our lifetime. In fact, the, the word of God is sufficient. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence given us all that we need for life and godliness, if just through this word. Before we do, get into the word, I just want to say, hey, um, great job, Potter's House. And you're saying, well, why am I saying that? Lots of reasons to say that. But one of the reasons I can say that is date night at the Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, who, who, who came to the date night at the Lake of the Ozarks? There we go. A lot of people from our church, we, we partnered with Rearview. It was a packed house. I mean, literally packed house the date night of Lake of the Ozarks, and David and Ann Wilson did a great job of bringing God's principles to bear upon our marriages, to encourage us, to challenge us, and our prayer is that from that, those who were in attendance, your marriage was encouraged, it was challenged, and you walked out there better than you went in there before. I know there's also people who were there who don't know Jesus. They came because they have a need, and their need is between husband and wife, to have a better marriage, but they don't know Jesus. They don't know, have this relationship, the vertical relationship yet. So I'd ask you to continue to pray for those who don't know him and pray for all of us that we would look to him for our, our value and our worth and our, our identity um, and, our, and, our, and our applause and not to our spouse because they can't provide that for us and look to him and may it impact all of our marriages and, and continue to impact our community. So uh, praise God for how well that went. Uh, we were in Texas last weekend. I was uh, officiating a wedding, speaking of marriages, um, down near the Gulf Coast. A beautiful wedding of a young lady that I've known since she was in a little carrier. And she asked me to come and officiate their wedding, and uh, it was a great time. And, and while we were there, we were informed that we're going to be grandparents by our son and his wife. So I'm pretty excited about that. I know I look like I could be a grandfather. John L. doesn't look like she could be a grandmother yet. Um, I understand that. I married her when she was two. Um, but uh, we're, we're super excited about that. And then my, my oldest son, his wife, are super excited too. They live in Dallas. So I um, appreciate you all uh, bearing with a proud grandfather. All right. I don't mind. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to take one of these weird names, though, like I don't, whatever these weird grandpa names are. Like grandpa will be just fine for me. Yeah. Well, hey, with that said, um, this morning we are going to continue our series in the study of Ruth in a series called A Story for the Ages. 
and oh, what a story it is. I hope you already think, man, this is an amazing story, just in our time already in, 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 the, in the book of Ruth. And this morning, we'll be examining uh, Ruth 3, 1 through 18. The, listen, we're going to do an entire chapter this morning. Shocker, I know, an entire chapter. And you're thinking, man, do we have time for us to do an entire chapter? We do. Um, and I'm, I, this is the, the, the title is The Threshing Floor, but once again, I have another subtitle. And here's my subtitle, A Quest for Rest. A quest for rest. So if you have a copy of God's Word, and I, I hope you do this morning, I'd ask you to take that out and turn to the book of Ruth. It's, uh, it's the sixth book in our Bibles, um, how we have them or- organized here uh, in, in our Bibles. So, but before we examine this passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to do a little review from last week. Last week, Jay walked us through the, the last part of chapter 2, verses 14 through 23, and he pointed out that Ruth accepted Boaz's graciousness without abusing or taking advantage, advantage of his graciousness. Jay pointed out that Ruth and said that Boaz's graciousness had put her at ease. He was so gracious to her, and if you remember that, and t- t- you know, taking her in, let her, letting her eat in places that she really didn't deserve to be eating, and drinking water of that was fetched by these male servants was not meant for her, but he gave her all this grace. Jay pointed out that taking advantage of graciousness might look like someone in a hot tub. If you were here last week, Jay kept pulling up this picture of a hot tub, all right, and, and somebody who's in a hot tub, just at, just at ease in a hot tub. And he also pointed out that many of us do this with grace in our lives. We submerge ourselves in God's grace and take our ease, just simply soaking it in, just soaking it in and soaking it in. And Jay reminded us that God's grace is not a hot tub where God puts us at ease. That's what it's not meant, it's not meant for that. It's our brokenness, yes, that allows God to show and display his grace in our life, yet we should yearn to come to a place that we have more to offer to God than our brokenness. Jay pointed out that God desires more for us than just to lie around and let him just respond to our brokenness all the time with his grace. Jay also pointed out that God has a plan for each of us and desires we respond to his grace by doubling down, I love how he put this, by doubling down our devotion to him and our service to him. When, when, we, when we get God's grace, which is in abundance all the time, it shouldn't make us want to sit back and put our feet up. It should make us want to get up and do something. And that's exactly what Ruth did. We saw in uh, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, Ruth got, go back to work, all right, um, after she'd been working all day long. And at the end of the day, she had 30 pounds to take home. Uh, having been a recipient of God's grace or, or Boaz's grace, Ruth did not just kick back and take it easy. Instead, she worked even harder. Think about that. She worked even harder. I love, I think about Paul writing to church of Corinth. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored more than all of them. But not I, but the grace of God in me. Right? It, it, it spurred Paul on for, for greater service. His grace inspired and empowered Ruth. And Jay encouraged us with this truth that it's okay to be broken, and, 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 but it's not okay to stay broken. And when God gives us his grace, he's meaning us to do something with it, to get up and get back after it. And Jay also pointed, that it's okay, pointed out it's okay to be in the hot tub a little bit. Sometimes we need the hot tub, don't we? Anybody need a hot tub this morning? Yeah, there's a few of us need a hot tub, right? 
after, I thought about this, and I actually listened to this on our way home from Texas. And, and after my first semester at the University of Kentucky, we moved into a brand new football facility. And at that time, it wasn't like people were moving new, brand new football facilities every other year like they do now in major college football. And I mean, the, the, like the Taj Mahal. But at this time, the University of Kentucky's football facility, after my first semester, my freshman year, was the nicest in the country. They basically went around, some guy, guy gave millions and millions and millions of dollars, a guy named Nutter, and, he, he, and, and they went around and found who had the biggest and best weight room. Let's go to Nebraska. Okay, we're going to make ours bigger than Nebraska. Who has the best of this? Who has the best training room? Who has the best all these things? And they, went, they put in this building. It was amazing, especially at, when you saw the building we were in, which had, was about 60 years old. It was an amazing building. And one of the cool things in there, one of the amenities was this giant hot tub right off the locker room. It said about 15, 20 guys, I'm sure. It was huge. And, and I mean, I've never, seen, I've never seen a hot tub in my life that ever that big. And so one of the great things I enjoyed was getting in that hot tub. I mean, it was awesome. And it, I mean, it was, so, it was super hot. I like a hot, hot tub. You know, it was hot, make it hot, right? So I just, just enjoyed sitting in a hot tub. And, and especially after two-a-days or sometimes three practices a day, and you're just crazy sore, and you get in that hot tub, and ah, it just brings refreshment. And, and the, the hot tub was meant to heal my body that was all beat up from football practice. It wasn't meant for me to stay in there when they called for practice for me just to stay in there. It was meant for me to be able to go out to practice and perform even better than before, to keep me going, not just to hang out in the hot tub. It was meant to help me to revive me, and that's what, what it is of God's grace. When we get into the hot tub of his grace, we're not meant to stay there, but we're, it's meant to revive us and encourage us to go out and be even greater. Um, Jay pointed out that, that Ruth understood this principle, for when she returned home to Naomi, Naomi asked her where she had worked all day. And Ruth does not obsess over how hard she worked or even where she worked. Instead, she's captivated, listen real closely, with whom she worked. It wasn't about what or how much or where, but it was with whom she worked. She worked with Boaz, this kind, gentle, gracious man. And even in a greater way, we should be captivated and rejoice over the fact that we get to work with our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jay then reminded us of the, the, the practice of Israel, the, the levirate marriage, which we've talked about a few times since we've been in, uh, in, in Ruth. When a man dies and he leaves a widow, his brother is to marry, all right, um, the, 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 his wife. I mean, he, the deceased man's wife should be married by his brother. Um, and this would help keep the, the dead brother's name alive and keep from his, his name disappearing in, his, in, in the land and, and also would keep a land in his, an inheritance of land in his family, um, and this is exactly what was getting ready to happen to Elimelech. His family was getting ready to die off. His name was getting ready to be forgotten. You see, Naomi um, and Elimelech had gone to the land of Moab. Their sons had married two Moabites. Then their sons died, and Elimelech died. Um, and Ruth was one of these uh, daughters-in-law of, of, of Naomi's. And if there's no brother to marry them, which there wasn't, all right, the law said that a near relative could fulfill that responsibility. And this near relative was called a guardian or kinsman redeemer. It's interesting, I'd never heard the word guardian redeemer. I always heard kinsman redeemer. And it's, it can be guardian redeemer, close relative, kinsman redeemer, but that's what they were called. And, and Ruth just happened 
just so happened to wander into the field of one of these kinsmen redeemers. Therefore, Naomi encourages Ruth to keep working in Boaz's field. And Jay pointed out that Ruth didn't need any encouragement to do this, for she was so taken by Boaz's grace, she, was gonna, she couldn't wait to get back there each day to be a recipient of his grace. Jay then pointed out that we, we've come to the point when the barley and the wheat harvest are now over. Uh, there's no gathering of the, 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 the barley and, and the wheat. So it must also mean that the relationship of Ruth and Boaz are over. Was it? Well, Jay encourages to come back next week, and guess what? Next week is now this week, so we could figure out if their relationship continued. Uh, so with that review, let's now turn our attention to our passage this morning, chapter 3 of Ruth. So if you'd stand with me as we read this, I may have to step over here and read it. All right, here we go. Beginning in verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter shall not seek, keep going, I can't see it. Let's try this again. All right, let's start over again. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter shall not seek security for you, that it may be well with you. Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you should do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the fleshing floor and did according to all her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drank, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after the young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known, not known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So he held it and measured it, six barleys of, keep going. <clears throat> then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then he said, wait, my daughter-in-law, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your word. Lord, what a privilege to be able to read your word together. Um, and just pray now that you'd open our hearts, our minds to your word, the truth that's contained here. Lord, plant them deep within us. 
that we may be more, more and more into the image of Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, as we examine, uh, that may be the, the, some of you may have, did you at least read a whole chapter in the Bible? How about that? That's awesome. My, one of my mentors used to say, nothing beats raw word. Just reading the word, all right? Well, as we examine this, this chapter, I will once again work my way down through the story, highlighting the truths and showing how they all point back to the main overarching truth in this passage. Then at the end, I'm going to point out some key implications from the main overarching truth that, that will encourage them, us to apply the truths of this passage to our lives. I mentioned this truth earlier with my subtitle, so I'll remind us of the, the, the big truth here. The big idea this morning is a quest for rest, a quest for rest. I think you'll see this in this passage of Scripture. This is a quest for rest. Uh, anybody here this morning needing rest? Yeah, I'm not talking about necessarily physical rest. I did not sleep well last night. Ask my wife. I did not sleep well. I, I don't know it, how not much sleep. And I don't know why. I had a lot on my mind. I had this passage on my mind. I was super excited because I was so excited about teaching this passage. That was on my mind. All right, I was just going over and over again. Um, but that's not the kind of rest uh, I'm talking about, physical rest. Um, I'm speaking of spiritual rest, emotional rest that brings security and hope. You, your soul is restless. Anybody there? You, your soul is restless. Augustine once pr- prayed this, Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And I'm telling you, our hearts will always be restless until we find our rest in him. My prayer this morning is that you will find that rest that you so desperately need in the Lord Jesus. So let's turn our attention to this passage. And as we enter chapter 3, Jay mentioned, as Jay mentioned last week, the barley and wheat harvest are over. So what has become of Ruth and Boaz's relationship? What, what's happened? Well, let's find out. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter shall not seek security for you, that it may go well with you. It seems here that there's a word here um, in New American Standard says then. Right? It's, it, there's some kind of time lapse between the end of the, the, the barley and wheat harvest. It, it, some people say it was like three weeks. Some people say it was up to maybe three months. There's just a little bit of a time lapse all right, from that, the end of, of chapter 2 into chapter 3. Now, I want you to notice a word here with me. And, uh, nope, just, no, no, I'll go back. Okay, just notice the word there, security, if you see that there, all right, security. Um, some translations say rest. Some translations say find a home. And, and the, the idea of rest is, the, is prominent in the story of Ruth. It's prominent throughout this whole story of Ruth. It's prominent here in chapter 3. It begins, and she is, she is saying her, Naomi's desire for Ruth is that she would find the rest or security to, that, that she so desires. And Naomi desired this for Ruth as well. And we know this, for you look back at chapter 1, verse 9, look what it says. May the Lord grant that you may find, what's that word? Rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, them and they lifted up their voices and wept. That word rest is the same word we see in chapter 3, verse 1. There's a connection. Naomi is what desires rest for her daughters-in-law. And now we come to the beginning of chapter 3, and we see that she says, shall I not seek rest for you or security for you? This is Naomi's de- desire. And Naomi is primarily concerned for Ruth's welfare and for her to be provided for by a husband 
who can function as the wings of God, which we saw in chapter 2, verse 12, who can truly be her kinsman, her guardian redeemer. All right, now look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Uh, now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, uh, and anoint yourself, put on breast clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known till the man, to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So Naomi sees an opportunity for Ruth to be blessed with a husband and future for her and her family. So she seizes the opportunity. Now, some say that Naomi is wrong for her plan here. They look at this and say, well, she's just wrong, that, that she's trying to take things in her own hands, that she's not trusting God like she should. Some people say, I've read a lot of people who, who believe that. And the text doesn't say that, though. The text doesn't say anywhere. She's not condemned for doing this anywhere in the text. So let's be careful of trying to make this text say something the text doesn't say. Maybe, I don't know, but I don't think so. I think when you work, work down through here and you, you take into account what, we've, account what we've already seen, I don't think that she is. I think her actions here point to the fact that she assumes, listen real quick, that the Lord is providing this opportunity. Therefore, since he is providing the opportunity, she moves forward. Remember, this is right after chapter 2 where Naomi had just witnessed the powerful and personal providence of God on display. She saw God work in every single way. Why wouldn't he work here? Why couldn't she be led just like she saw God work there in the same way that God's at work here? She sees that Boaz, one of the possible kinsmen redeemers, enters, uh, is entering into their life, and she sees this as the hand of God. I don't think she's making up her own plan. I think she's going, well, how about that? One of our kinsmen redeemers, a guy can help us out. He's like, my daughter-in-law just happened to come up on this field, and he happened to show her grace. I'm being sarcastic with her happened because we don't believe in luck because the Bible doesn't teach that. There's no chances, all right? God's in control of this whole thing, and he's bringing things in, in, in real life, bringing things about, and she's looking around and saying, oh, my gosh, God's at work. And she sees an opportunity, and I think God's at work here. I don't see her motives being wrong. I don't see what she's doing being wrong. Um, and you see, I think we need to pause here for, for, for just a moment, be reminded that we're not just to sit around waiting for God to work. We saw that last week. Uh, if you've ever said this, because I, I, I'll, I've said this before. Maybe you've never been, um, I'm trying to use the right word here, um, so uh, immature and lack of understanding of who God is that you maybe never use this phrase. Here it is, let go and let God. Now, don't incriminate yourself by raising your hand. You use that, I've used that phrase before. I don't use that phrase anymore because that's not what the Bible teaches. Just let go. Woo, just let God, all right? And this is what I imagine. We're just going to let go and put our feet up and do nothing. That's not what the Bible teaches ever. It does not. We, by his grace, are to be active and join him where we see him working in and through our lives. We walk along and we walk in this life and we're being filled by the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. We're allowing the Spirit through his word to control our lives. And guess what? God's right there to meet us. It's not let go and let God. It's move forward and God's at work and he's going to work through you. That's what the scripture teaches. Not set back and do nothing. And, and I love that Naomi didn't sit back and do nothing. Well, I'm just going to wait till something happens, so lightning strikes. And if we're just waiting for God to lightning strike all the time, we're going to be sitting around for a long time. Or to speak to us audibly. I'm not saying God can't do that. But if we're waiting on that, that's not the norm in Scripture. 
Even in the Old Testament where it happens a lot more often. It's not the norm. People just walked and they lived just like Naomi's living in, in a relationship with God and she's looking around and watching God work and she moves forward. We would, we would do well to learn um, from Naomi here. Now look again in verse 3. Um, notice what he, she tells um, Naomi, uh, Ruth to do. To wash yourself, all right? Um, something that could be done maybe in preparation for a wedding, somebody think. Anoint yourself. Perfume is needed, obviously, in that climate. And put on your best clothes. Now, that translation is misleading. Put on your best clothes. Um, because the word that's used here is the outer garment that covered the entire body um, except the head. And it's used more to keep the body warm than to look good. All right? This is not like put on your best clothes. It's just put on these clothes. And it seems that it's an encouragement for Naomi, uh, from Naomi to Ruth, to put her mourning behind her just like David did in 2 Samuel 12. All right? So listen real closely. All right? Ruth has lost her husband. And many believe, and I believe too, that she still at this point is still mourning her husband up until this point. And they would wear certain things to show that they were still in mourning. And I think that Ruth is telling her to get up, wash yourself, put on perfume, and change your clothing to show that you're no longer in mourning. And where would I get that idea? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, you can look at it later, but go ahead and write that down. 2 Samuel 12, when David's son, born of Bathsheba, died, he does the exact same thing. He gets up and he washes himself after the baby died. He puts on perfume. And he put on different clothes. And the word there for different clothes is the exact same word as here. David wasn't putting on his Sunday best to go impress people. He just had been mourning. He just, it was time for him to move on in his life. And, and his changing clothes was a sign that it was time for him to move on. The baby was, he says, I can't go and be with him. I mean, where he is, I can't go now. I will be with him later is what he says. And he gets up and he moves on. And here I think Naomi is including Ruth, encouraging Ruth to do the same. Just to, to, to get up. And move on, no longer be in mourning. Put on clothes, wash yourself, put on perfume, put on these clothes that show you're no longer in, in mourning. And the fact that Ruth did this would be a signal to Boaz that Ruth was ready to return to normal life, which also included marriage. Now look at the rest of verses 3 and 4. Um, I think that's, what that say? Yeah, it says, and go down, next part of her instruction, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you should do. What Naomi was asking Ruth to do is seen by some as sensual and tempting Boaz sexually. People even taught this. I'm just going to tell you right now, the only way you can see that is if you look at this passage through a Western mindset or a Western culture. If you look at through the United States of America mindset, that's the only way you can see something sensual and sexually about this passage. So we've got to get out of the Western mindset and step into their culture. What was going on here? It wasn't something, some, uh, her coming dressed in her bikini, we've already seen that. She's dressed from here to there. That's, he, oh man, whoo, look at that. No, that's not going to happen here at all. And what Naomi was suggesting Ruth do is not immoral. It was in harmony with Israel's laws and social conventions. It may have been, it may have been dangerous. She's a Moabite, a woman coming to a public setting 
and it would be at night when she would carry out this plan. So, but it wasn't immoral. Nothing about what she did was immoral. And we will clearly see this as the story continues. Boaz, listen, had already shown his interest in chapter 2 in Ruth. And Ruth's actions here in chapter 3 would only be encouraging Boaz to follow through with his interest and pursue her. That's all that was happening. Now notice Ruth's response to Naomi's counsel in verse 5. Look what it says. Look at those words. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. So Naomi comes with this plan. She gives it to Ruth, and Ruth responds, all that you say, I will do. Wow. What a response. But should we expect anything less from Ruth? In the book of Ruth, Ruth is always submissive to the authority of Israel and Israel's God. This shows her true commitment to Yahweh, the one true God. Naomi's counsel was seen as the counsel of the Lord to Ruth. So Ruth knows her need. She realizes that she is not at rest. She's, she's not secure in this new land, in this new culture. So she obeys humbly and pursues the one who could give her the rest she seeks. How about you and I? Do we show our commitment to and love of Yahweh by willingly and eagerly obeying his word? I, I love what Jesus says, and this is not one of those thing, head scratchers, you all. What Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's proof. It's evidence of our love for God by keeping his commandments. And this is evidence that Ruth loved God. That she say, whatever you say, I'll do it. Well, look with me now at verses 6 and 7. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his, his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. What would happen, listen, if someone uncovered your feet and legs while you were sleeping outside on a cool night? Now think about that with me. What would happen if somebody did that to you? You're sleeping outside on a cool night, and somebody uncovered your legs and your feet. What would happen? Well, notice in verse 8 what uh, happened to Boaz. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled. All right, here we go. The man was startled and bent forward. Behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Boaz must have felt the coolness on his legs and feet, so he woke up. That's what I would do. If I was cold, I would wake up. Most of us do. All right. And to his amazement, though, not only was he cold, but there's, some, there's, a, there's a woman lying at his feet. Now, he notices there's a woman probably just by, the out, just by the size of her or whatever, but he doesn't know exactly who it is. All right? And many men of this day, and at this point, would have taken advantage of the situation, if you know what I mean, but not Boaz. He's already proven himself to be a godly man. Now, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, who are you? And notice Ruth's response. I'm your maid. Her response is humble, realizing who it is she is speaking to her. At this point, Ruth has done exactly what Naomi told her to do. All right? So she's gone. She's done everything she's told her to do at this point. All right? But now look what Ruth says. So spread your covering over your maid if you are a close relative. Naomi didn't tell her to say that. 
That wasn't part of her instructions that we have. Yet Ruth understood her need. She came to the one who could meet her need, and she humbly asked him to meet her need of rest and security, a new life full of hope and a future. She just humbly asked, would you do this? What was it she requested? It says, so spread your covering, or some of your translations say, spread your wing over your maid. This is a marriage proposal. It's a Near Eastern custom that signified the establishment of a new relationship and symbolic declaration of a husband to provide for the sustenance of his future wife. And God uses the same language to describe his covenant relationship with Israel in Ezekiel 16.8, which is a passage filled with wedding language. He uses the exact same language. By using these words, Ruth is quoting words that Boaz used the first time they met back in chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz had said that Ruth had come to take refuge or find rest under the wings of the Lord, under Yahweh. Now by asking Boaz to spread his wings over her, Ruth is asking Boaz to be the Lord's instrument of his covenant love by fulfilling his role as her redeemer. Think about that. That's what she's asking. Would you fulfill your role as a kinsman redeemer? It's a marriage proposal. Wow. What's wrong with this? Nothing. Nothing. And this was not wrong. Maybe different, but not wrong. And we see this whole redeemer part in the words, for you are a close relative. Some translators say kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, family redeemer. And some would say here that Ruth has taken a huge risk by asking Boaz to fulfill this role of kinsman redeemer and marry her. And some would say, this is taking a huge risk to do all this. But was she taking a huge risk? Or is she trusting the Lord and trusting the character of this man Boaz that the Lord has providentially placed in her life at this time and this place? Well, let's read on and find out. All right, look at verse 10 with me. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Instead of rebuking her, he blesses her. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. It's the same blessing Naomi pronounced on Boaz in chapter 2, verse 20 we saw last week. These words would have immediately calmed any concern that Ruth might have had. He's blessing her, not rebuking her. Boaz then says, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first. Her first kindness is referring to her commitment to leave her own country, leave her culture, leave her gods behind, follow after the one true God, and go back to Bethlehem in a foreign culture with her mother-in-law, Naomi. That's, that's the first kindness. The second kindness he's referring to, he says, by, second kindness he's referring to is here, by not going after the young men, whether poor or rich. And the young men, it's, the, the word means men in the prime of their strength. I mean, these guys look a bunch of, like a bunch of 25-year-old guys that have been in a weight room. I mean, that's what he's talking about. You didn't go after them because of the way they looked. That, that was amazing to him. And she probably could have had any young man she wanted. But she desires what the Lord wants for her, a godly man, and this particular godly man. So I just, just pause here for a second. I talked to the young guys last week. I'm going to talk to the ladies this morning a little bit, especially if you're unmarried. Ladies, take note of this. Don't look for or settle for a guy that's just impressive on the outside. He just looks good. 
I used to pick on one of the guys in our church back in Texas all the time. His name was Clint Rupley. I mean, he was like tall, dark, and handsome. He's one of my best buddies. A, 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 a young couple who came to our church. God transformed their life. He, they came, both came to know Jesus, and then he just started walking with Jesus. But I mean, this guy's about six foot four. He's got arms like that can touch the sign over there, all right? Just looks good. Just got that nice shape of the head. I mean, he, you know, I've got a great face for radio. He's got a great face for TV, all right? So looks good, stuff like that. And, 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 but there's a lot more to Clint Rupley than that. It's not mean he can't look good, but he's a godly man. And ladies, God wants you to have a godly man, not just somebody who looks good on the outside, to find a godly man. And I can tell you, the most attractive woman, thing to a godly woman is what? A godly man. So take note of what Ruth was after. She could have had any of these. She was, she was probably good looking, young, and any of these young guys would have liked to have had her as a wife. But she doesn't go after them. She comes after this guy. He's probably 50 years old. She's pro- she may be about 19 years old. And she sees him, and she's attracted because of his godliness. All right, well, look at verse 11 here uh, with me. And Boaz continues with this good news. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. He says, I, um, he, he says, I'll do whatever you ask. He doesn't cast her out, but accepts her humble request. She, she's proposing to him, and he's saying, I do. It's like when I went to, to, to ask my bride to marry me, right? And I said, I had this whole thing planned out. It was Christmas Eve. Man, I brought all this props. It was awesome. What is awesome is what they do now. It was just like right in front of her. When people photography, you know, photography or video of the deal. But I mean, this whole thing planned out, and when I got down on my knee and I showed her the ring, I said, will you marry me? She laughed. But she came around, all right. But uh, um, but she here, Boaz. He just said, "I'll do whatever you ask." Yes, I do. And notice what he says about Ruth. Uh, people know that you are a woman of excellence. The word excellence here is the same word used for Boaz in chapter two, verse one. Um, he was a worthy man, a man of integrity, a man of wealth. That's what how we talked about a couple weeks ago. How it described Boaz. Excellence, noble character, worthy, virtuous. That's what this word is describing Ruth now. It's also the same word used for a godly wife in Proverbs 31.10. All right, look what it says here. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far more than jewels. That word excellence is the same word used here. And it's interesting to note that in the Hebrew scriptures, in the order of their books, our books, this is, this is book number six, all right, and it's not a big deal what order they're in. We put it here because historically this is where Ruth was. It's with the time of Judges, and the Judges are right before this. All right, book number seven, sorry. Um, book number eight, Joshua Judges Ruth. There we go. Book number eight, all right, in our book. All right, it, it's right after that because that's historically where it was. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's after Proverbs. So right after this description of an excellent wife, you have a book about an excellent wife. Isn't that neat? That's, that's what, and I think there's a purpose. That's one of the reasons they probably put it there. I don't think that God told them to put it there, but that's one of the reasons they probably put it there because it's his example. And um, it's the exact same language here from Proverbs 31 that Boaz uses to describe Ruth, an excellent woman. Boaz and Ruth were two of a kind, a man and a woman of excellence, of noble character, of integrity. They were perfect for each other. You know, it's almost as if the Lord was kind of involved in this. Doesn't it kind of seem like that to you? Well, it's because he was. 
He was intimately involved in all this. Now look at verse 12 back in our passage. Now, is, now it is true I am a close relative, however there is a cl- relative closer than I. Notice that word, however. Hold the music. Uh-oh. We got a problem. What's this whole however stuff? Boaz reveals that he is a kinsman redeemer, but he's not the kinsman redeemer. Oh. Everything was going along great, and he was getting ready to sweep Ruth up on his white horse, and they were going to ride off into the sunset. Not so fast. There's something here. What must have gone through Ruth's mind as she heard this? Can you imagine the emotions? She's, he, she, he's, he's, she's, in a sense, proposed to him. He said, whatever you do, I'll ask. And then he brings this whole thing out about another guy that's in front of him in line. Are you kidding me? What kind of story is this? The rest she longed for and needed seemed to be slipping through her fingers. Well, look at verse 13. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives, lying down, lie down until morning. Now notice that word redeemed. It's used three times in the Hebrew. It's actually four in the English here. It's three times for emphasis. Boaz is committing to fulfill his role as one of the redeemers. He's committed to this. He's so committed. Notice the, the, the phrase he uses. Let me see if I highlighted this. As the Lord lives. This is oath language. Boaz makes an oath to let Ruth know his intent on being not just a kinsman redeemer, but the kinsman redeemer. He's committed to this. And being the godly man Boaz was, he was not about to take the Lord's name in vain. He wasn't just saying this flippantly. He's, as the Lord lives, you can count on it. I'll come through. Boaz not, would not have used the Lord's name in vain. And even though Boaz desired to marry Ruth, though he, he, he did not violate the Mosaic law, he submitted to God's revealed word. Does it sound some familiar? Who else in our scripture submitted to God's word? Yeah, Ruth. Here, Boaz is submitting to God's word. This is what a man of integrity does. Take note. They submit to God's word. And notice what else a man of integrity does in verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize her, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the fleshing floor. Boaz wanted to protect her reputation. Here's one of those young men. If, you have, if you're dating a young woman or pursuing a young woman, you do everything you possibly can to protect her reputation. That's what a godly man does. You don't let it be possible somebody might think something bad of her because where you're seen with her or where you're not seen with her, you keep it out in the light. So nobody will question her reputation. That's what Boaz did. Well, Boaz went, to, um, went on here in verse 15, what he says. And again, he said, give me the cloak that is on, your, on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. He measured, notice, he measured six measures of barley. Six measures of barley. All it says is a measure. It doesn't tell us how much. It doesn't tell us, like, it wasn't, then, it wasn't effa. It doesn't say ounces or pounds or anything like that. It doesn't say any of that. It just says six measures, all right? We're not sure exactly how much, but it was generous. Why? So much so that he had to lift it to put it on her back. Some people could think it would be 60 to 95 pounds 
that she carried on her back. Uh, Let's continue on here um, in verse 16 and 17. When she came to her mother-in-law, probably out of breath from carrying all this barley, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Not only was Ruth blessed by Boaz's grace, but so was Naomi. And in chapter 1, when Naomi came back to Bethlehem from Moab, remember what she said? I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And Boaz is now an instrument of God's hand. And by Boaz's grace, he has made her empty no more. She is now full. Isn't that good? Man, I'm getting goosebumps. It's like God wrote this thing or something. Holy cow. Wow. I truly believe that Naomi saw Boaz. Listen, very careful. I truly believe that Naomi saw Boaz's gesture of generosity with the barley as a pledge or a down payment, assuming that both he, that, that, assuring both of them, Naomi and Ruth, that he would come through on his promise. So it's almost as this, this, this barley he brought back was a down payment. You know, see how faithful I'm sending this just as, just as a down payment, just so you see what's coming. There's more to come. The best is yet to come. But she could physically see this is what he was going to do. He was going to keep his word. And why do I say this? He's like, you're making that up. Well, look at verse 18. All right? Notice the end. It says, for the man will not rest until he's settled it today. She knew Moaz would be true to his word. And the gift of barley was just a taste of what he planned to do as their kinsman redeemer. This was a sign to her. Boaz will come through. You can count on it, Ruth. You can count on it. He, he won't rest. He's, he, he sent this ahead to remind us that he's a faithful man, that he'll keep his promise. Well, think about this with me. The chapter began with Naomi's desire that Ruth would find rest in the security of marriage. That was, that was, that was Naomi's desire for Ruth. It was also Ruth's desire. And through Boaz, this kinsman redeemer. And now the chapter ends with Boaz not resting until he provides rest for Ruth. Chapter, verse 1 and verse 18 starts with rest, it ends with rest. So why would I say this is a quest for rest? It's because that's what the Scripture is teaching. And here it is. At the, end, at the beginning of the chapter, this quest for rest by, by, by Naomi and Ruth, and at the end, that Boaz will not rest until he provides rest for them. Well, what will happen? What will happen? Will Boaz come through on his word and settle the matter? Well, I guess you'll have to come back next week to hear the rest of the story, to see if he comes through on his word. Well, what difference does this make? I always ask that question here, so, so what? Let me ask that question again I asked earlier. Are you on a quest for rest this morning? Maybe you're seeking rest for your restless soul this morning. You, you feel hopeless and you feel as if you, you, you have no purpose. This longing for true rest that comes from being at peace with God can only come through the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. I promised at the beginning that I would present some implications from this passage, and there's a lot of them. I didn't give all of them to you. There's a lot of them. I'm just going to throw five at you this morning. All right? So here's the, the, here's the first one. All right? Admit your need to find your rest. Admit that your greatest need for rest comes from the fact, listen very closely, that you are sinful and your sin separates you from a holy and just God. That's your greatest need for rest. Sometimes we talk about, we, 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 I don't want to get this confused at all. We talk about, hey you, hey, you need to trust in Jesus. And, and because someone's dealing with 
you know, maybe it's a family problem, a marriage problem, a relationship problem, a money problem, what it is, that I need to trust Jesus for that. That's not what we're talking about here. Your biggest problem is not that you don't have enough money or there's a problem in your relationship or there's a problem with this over here. Your biggest problem is you got a problem with God. And that has to be settled. It has to be settled. We've got a problem with God because of our sin. We're separated from God. Who cares if I make more money if I'm separated from God? Who cares if all my relationships are better if I'm separated from God? It doesn't matter. So when we say about trusting in Jesus, we're about trusting all right, in God's plan here. And the first thing we have to do is we have to admit our need for rest. Rest at being peace with God. This holy and just God that we've sinned against. All right? Which comes to our, our second implication. Right? Humbly come to the one who can give you rest, the Redeemer. Yes, God is holy and just. And our sin separates from him. And he must punish our sin. But he's also loving and gracious. Isn't that good news? It makes it good news because we just saw that we're in trouble. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God is loving. He's gracious. So he sent Jesus to be our redeemer, to rescue us from the penalty, power, and ultimately the presence of sin. We must humbly come to the one who can give us true rest, the redeemer, Jesus. Now, some would say that you're taking a risk, kind of like Ruth did, when you humbly come to Jesus and ask him to be your redeemer. But are we? Are we taking a risk, or are we trusting that our redeemer is faithful and true and that everything he said he will do? Well, that comes to our next implication. Ask him to give you rest. You can come to him humbly, but you've got to ask him to give you rest. Just as, just as, they, just as Ruth did, she asked him to give me rest. She didn't just show up and just lay there and then get up and didn't, didn't say nothing. They figure it out. She said, hey, I came to get rest. Put your covering over me. Put your wing over me. We've got to ask him. We need to turn from trusting ourselves to take care of the penalty of our sin and trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf through his death, burial, and resurrection. And now if you humbly come to him and ask him to be your savior from the penalty of sin, he will embrace you. Don't worry, he will. If you come humbly and ask him to be your Lord and savior, your savior from the penalty of sin, he will come through. Look what Jesus says in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. If we come to Jesus humbly, he will not cast us out. Isn't that good news? He won't rebuke us. And if, you, if Jesus is already your Savior from the penalty of sin, though you can come to him to find rest in him as a Savior from the daily power of sin. We just keep going back. Lord, I, I need your help. i got this sin problem. I got this, this sin just keeps chasing me. And, and keep being tempted, Lord, I need your power to overcome sin because he died for the, on the cross for that as well. Not just the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. We can come. You know what? When we come to him, he will not cast us out. He said, come, uh, you, yes, you bet. I'm going to give it out. Comes to, it comes to our fourth implication. Receive the down payment as his, of his rest. Receive the down payment of his rest. Now think about this. What do we talk about? That, that Ruth carried back this sack of barley, maybe 60 to 90 pounds back home, and, and, and Naomi saw it more than just a providing for their need to eat, but also saw it as a down payment that, that Boaz was going to come through on his promise to be the kinsman redeemer. Hey, guess what? The ultimate kinsman redeemer also gave a down payment. We see this in Ephesians 1.14. Who is given, speaking of the Holy Spirit, as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit as a, listen, this word here, this, this, this pledge 
is the, is the word arabone. It's where we get a, 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 uh, an earnest money. It's an earnest. Now, things have changed in the real estate market. I don't know why, Jason. You have to explain this to us. But used to, when you put down a down payment, when you put down earnest money, what happens if you back out of that deal? You lose the money. Nowadays, you can get off of anything, without anything, it seems like, all right? But you lose the money. Jesus said that the Father would send the Spirit, God the Spirit, as a down payment. How sure is that down payment that he's going to come through from what he promised? Hey, we, we need to receive the down payment of his rest for us. The Holy Spirit, embrace that. He will come through. He is God. He's a, he will come through on his word. And then, lastly, expectantly wait for him to return, bringing you his full rest. Hey, right now our story is ended at the end of chapter 3, and Ruth is waiting. She's waiting for the kinsman redeemer to come again. You see that? Sound familiar? It should, because the real kinsman redeemer is going to come again too. Amen. He's, he's promised he will come again. He's given the down payment, and he will come, and he will give us the full measure of our rest. He promises in many places, one of those is in John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, I will receive you myself to where I am, there you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. He is coming again. That, that's awesome news. And we should be praying, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. This is great news. May we, we, we be like Ruth and expectantly wait for the promised one to come again and fulfill all that he has promised. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't miss what you're doing here. Lord, you, you, you in, in your providential plan for the, all this to work out, Lord, Ruth was seeking, Naomi and Ruth both were seeking rest. And you sent Boaz the kinsman redeemer, to bring them rest, which ultimately points to the one true kinsman redeemer for all of us, who if we would come to him humbly and cry out to him to save us from the penalty of our sin, that he will be our kinsman redeemer. He will rescue us from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Lord, thank you for that great news, the good news, the gospel. May we be faithful to go out and proclaim that to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me, um, first of all, say there'll be people up here afterward. If you need to pray with somebody, you've got questions. If you want to know, hey, how can I know the ultimate kin kin kinsman redeemer? That he can rescue me and give me true rest. We'll have people down here at the front to talk to you about that when we're done. I'm going to end with this passage of scripture, right? And then hold on when I end it. I've got one more thing to say, okay? So here's a passage of scripture you want to end with today. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. If you stand with me. And let's read this together. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that good news? He will give us the rest that we all need and we all seek. Amen. Now, before we dismiss, I'm going to ask you to sit back down. All right? And we've got a short, this is, this, is, this is Operation Christmas Child packing party Sunday, 
all right? And we're, these boxes are going to go all over the world. And we need just a, it's a couple minutes of instruction. And this would be great. If you can, if you just pack one box, that would be great. If everybody here pack a box, we'd probably be done. All right, just pack one box. But we want to make sure we do it the right way so people don't have to come back later and repack them. So this, this, this video right here is going to show us how to pack it. And when this is done, then let's all go out there in the grace of God, right, and work with God to prepare these boxes for children.